Hello, uh, I'm Mariam Shamanesh and I'm a consultant and senior lecturer at UCL and Waterman Market. And I'm here chatting with George Kinghorn about how we treat STIs from 1917 to 2017. Um, so George, as you know, this is the centenary of the 1917 Venereal Diseases Act, um, which prohibited treatment of venereal diseases by unqualified persons and advertising of remedies. And we were just wondering how you compare being a physician for STIs in the 19, in 1917 with, with being a gender urinary physician in 2017? Well, it's certainly, uh, uh, we're still in an area of uh, great fascination um, and a, a, an area where there is a great challenge. Uh, but uh, the world of, uh, uh, of what was then venereology and their sexual health now are very, very different. Uh, and I think that much... Uh, that has been beneficial in terms of uh, the change results from the legislation uh, that occurred in 1917. Maybe for the audience it would be useful to sort of outline what the key elements of this legislation was that made such a difference. The legislation resulted from a Royal Commission uh, that was set up in 1913 which had the objectives of getting a better understanding of the true prevalence of uh, venereal diseases and making recommendations about what be, should be done to allow recent scientific discoveries into clinical practice and thereby promote much better treatment uh, for the individual and improve public health control. The uh, Commission reported in 1916, and the recommendations were encapsulated in the venereal diseases regulations of 1917. And these represented a fundamental change in how the uh, sexually transmitted infections were to be viewed and managed. Uh, the key features of the 1917 Act uh, were uh, that local authorities were empowered to establish treatment clinics and thereby uh, create a structured service which could put into practice new science about diagnosis and treatment. Uh, most of the funding for these clinics was to be supplied by the central government. Treatment was to uh, be provided only by medically qualified persons, and attendance at uh, clinics was to be free and confidential and open access without the need for any prior medical referral. Above all, attendance was to be voluntary and without compulsion. So uh, the regulations represented a fundamental change in how these disorders were to be viewed and managed and emphasized that effective treatment of individuals was an essential component of good public health control. By providing free access to more effective diagnosis and treatment, they made a start at promoting health-seeking behaviour at an earlier stage of infection before complications had ensued. They changed the emphasis from being compulsory to voluntary and made a start at reducing uh, the stigma which was associated with venereal diseases. So, um, in your opinion, how would you sort of compare the sexual health services that people were then experiencing in 1917 with what we have in 2017? Uh, they're, they're very, very different. Um, in, before 1917, uh, there were, in effect, uh, no uh, or very inadequate uh, medical services. And indeed, many doctors uh, uh, took a, a, a judgmental approach 
and refuse to provide care for patients with these conditions. And as such, uh, training of medical students about these conditions was absent or poor, uh, and there was no medical infrastructure. So uh, before the regulations, much of the treatment was in the hands of the unqualified laity and uh, had little positive effect and often very detrimental uh, negative effect. So uh, in 2017, uh, we have uh, a, a very structured service uh, which works uh, throughout uh, the UK. Um, and although the spectrum of clinical disorders that we see is now uh, very much different from that which occurred in 1917. Uh, I think that uh, we have moved on hugely during the past uh, century. The other thing I was wondering is how do you think the sort of additional regulations that came in the 1970s may have contributed to the, the disease regulation in 1974? Uh, the health service uh, came into being in 1948. And then with subsequent revisions of uh, the, uh, how health services in the UK uh, were organized, uh, the legislation was required uh, to pass on the responsibilities for providing treatment and care uh, from, these, uh, uh, from the boards of governors of hospitals to new health authorities. But as they did this, they also recognized that uh, other uh, sexually transmitted infections other than the venereal diseases were now become, had become much more important. And so the responsibility providing care and free confidential care uh, was extended from the venereal diseases to this wider spectrum of disorders. But the other uh, matter which was of importance was that there should be good contact tracing and partner notification. And that required that information should be passed from the doctors treating individuals uh, to uh, uh, nurses, health advisors, and others who were working with them in order to undertake partner notification. And it was clear that treatment of the individual alone was insufficient to affect good public health control but good public health control also necessitated uh, that uh, good partner notification uh, should take place. So the regulations uh, and the changes to them in 1974 uh, were designed to bring that about. And so kind of putting it all together, how do you feel this, the original act, the amendments, um, really had on the control of STIs or sexually transmitted infections in the UK? I think that they made a start to get to, to, to better control. It's important to realize that at uh, this time in June uh, uh, of the Great War, there was a huge problem in, uh, in, in London and many major European cities. Syphilis was affecting 10% or more of uh, the adult population. So we had uh, inadequate data, in fact, about how common uh, venereal diseases were. And perhaps the most reliable uh, data was from uh, the military. And during uh, the Great War, it was said that venereal diseases caused 400,000 hospital admissions, affected uh, more than 5% of the enlisted troops, and uh, diminished the fighting strength by no less than one division per day. 
and a soldier was five times more likely to be admitted to hospital with syphilis or gonorrhea as with trench foot. This is quite different today. Syphilis is now a relatively uh, uncommon disorder. In, in, in 1917, treatment uh, lasted for six months or more. Nowadays, uh, and at that time, it was also it also required hospital admission. Um, here, syphilis is now treated as a, as an outpatient disorder, uh, and in many case, early cases, can be treated with a single treatment of penicillin. So, uh, 19, the 1917 regulations. Uh, were essential to uh, bring about much better control by uh, bringing by bringing these into uh, medical care as for other uh, diseases, and this has led to a dramatic change in uh, the incidence of those venereal diseases within the UK and indeed elsewhere. So that that's really really interesting and. Um, Looking at yourself, so you started as a gender urinary medicine physician in 1977. Can you describe some of the key changes that you've actually witnessed yourself over the over the lifetime of the speciality? Uh, well, yes, I started uh, uh, 60 years later, and uh, at that time, uh, sexually transmitted diseases were an, a re-emerging problem. It's interesting that after the introduction of antibiotic therapy. Uh, during the Second World War, they had a dramatic effect uh, both on uh, treatment uh, and uh, subsequently upon the incidence of infection. And indeed, it was thought that during the 1950s that uh, these conditions might even be eradicated. However, uh, other sexually transmitted infections caused by viruses and other agents were becoming more prevalent and antimicrobial resistance to penicillin and other new antibiotics was starting to be appreciated as a significant problem in the treatment of gonorrhea. Uh, during the 1960s, we had profound societal changes which occurred and favoured onward transmission of sexually transmitted infections, and this was the so-called sexual revolution. So then, greater affluence allowed more recreational activities locally and more international travel for both business and pleasure. And this, this provided the means whereby spread of uh, sexually transmitted infections uh, was to become very much uh, more common, to become a global phenomenon rather than just being a local issue. Uh, the advent of the pill and effective contraception which reduced the fear of pregnancy and facilitated more liberal attitudes to sexual behavior, especially outside traditional marital relationships, uh, led to earlier sexual debut and increasing lifetime sexual partners. And this became more and more uh, common and eventually the norm. And the other change which had occurred during the 60s uh, was the decriminalization of homosexuality and this allowed new opportunities and venues for meeting between potential partners to emerge. So uh, when I first came into the discipline, we were uh, it was an exciting time. Then, uh, in the late 70s, there were about 120 GUM consultants in the UK and about 50 trainees. Um, Amongst our specialty leaders, there were several very charismatic individuals who were enthusiastic teachers of medical students. 
And my entry into the specialty was hugely influenced by Robbie Morton, who led the service in Sheffield. Uh, like many of his counterparts, uh, wartime medical experience with VD cases had led him into the specialty. So when I first came to the specialty in 1977, uh, we had rapidly increasing sexually transmitted infections. Infectious syphilis was rare in our population and was usually seen in gay men and imported from elsewhere. The traditional venereal diseases were less than 5% of the annual caseload and NSU had become the commonest cause of urethritis. In addition, the viral STIs were an increasing problem, especially genital warts, which then required uh, twice-weekly attendance for clinician-applied topical treatment. So a, a different spectrum uh, then applied to that which occurred in 1917. In terms of the premises, the, the clinic where I started work uh, had been built in the early 70s but had become isolated from other outpatient services when they moved to the new hospital. And reuniting our services at the new hospital was the first challenge I faced as a new consultant, and it took some years to resolve. Uh, our clinic had uh, one full-time consultant and two other half-time consultants, uh, which, who they also provided services in adjacent towns. And uh, we had two male consulting rooms and one female consulting room which reflected our male predominance and workload. Uh, there were two registrars as trainees, uh, supported by occasional uh, sessional doctors. When I retired some uh, 35 years later, our case, annual caseload had increased more than fourfold. Uh, we had seen a huge change in the number of patients and also the range of patients uh, attending the clinic uh, we, we saw people in all age groups with a diverse ethnic mix and all social classes and occupations. Uh, women uh, predominated over men in terms of uh, clinical, uh, clinic attenders and were far more likely to be healthcare and other professionals as they were to be ladies of the night. Our clinic then extended over three floors. And our staff numbers had in increased uh, enormously. They were uh, the equivalent of seven full-time consultants provided who provided a network of services over a much larger area of South Yorkshire, North Derbyshire, and North Notts. And we had around 15 doctors and various stages of training, as well as clinical psychologists, nurse consultants and specialists, and uh, health advisors. So we had very much a dedicated multidisciplinary team uh, of research staff. Uh, I'm sure my mentor would have been astounded at how the service had grown, and not least the impact of HIV infection, uh, for which we had then developed uh, dedicated facilities to provide both complete outpatient and inpatient care. Wow. Um, do you think, given... I mean outside of HIV, there is still a place for open access, free at the point of delivery, confidential and I national service that, that this, we have? Uh, this is uh, uh, extremely, extremely important. Um, the history of public health uh, 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 control measures is that it has always been the case that when a new issue is seen to be better controlled that resources are withdrawn and are transferred uh, elsewhere. 
and often there is inadequate uh, uh, surveillance or vigilance in the services which are left behind. Uh, specialist GUM physicians are important uh, for uh, clinical excellence, to set standards of care and best practice. They have a key surveillance role. They have a, a very important role in uh, teaching and training uh, the next generation of doctors and other healthcare professionals. And they are important for epidemiological and clinical research uh, into new and improved treatments and management strategies. We know that the complications from sexually transmitted infections from late diagnosis and misdiagnosis are invariably expensive. Untreated STIs also favor HIV transmission. So I feel very strongly that uh, urgent access to our services is essential to preserve low-cost control of STIs. It's interesting that when I first came into the discipline, we had completely open access. We had no waiting lists and no waiting times. Um, and uh, although there sometimes required quite long periods of waiting, there, we facilitated early presentation for care and treatment. One of the changes which has occurred over my working lifetime is we've moved towards a more appointments-based system. And that inevitably uh, has introduced a degree of delay for some patients in when they are being seen. It was very helpful uh, when uh, we had targets for 48-hour access, uh, and the aim being that everybody should be seen within 48 hours. Ideally, I would still argue uh, that it is important that everybody should be seen immediately. Uh, but that's not always a practical proposition. Without specialist services, my feeling is that there will be delays, that there will be uh, ongoing, uh, much more ongoing transmission. And I think that it ultimately it will be more expensive to treat uh, complications rather than to have dealt with these uh, conditions at the earlier stage. So, so you think there still is a role for the gender urinary physician going into the 21st century? This isn't something that can be taken I'm by I'm sure that there is a role for us, in fact, you know, particularly, as I said, uh, in terms of setting standards in teaching and training uh, and uh, in research and innovation. Um, but uh, I appreciate you know, that there is now a wider spectrum of uh, providers, uh, but I'm I, I'm sure that there is still a role for the specialists in terms of coordinating and leading those services. Um, I was thinking the things which we did when I first came into this discipline, uh, which we no longer insist upon. Um, we used to have, as I say, an open access service, uh, which was uh, 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 very useful. We used to insist that everybody who had been diagnosed with any form of sexually transmitted disease was always investigated fully for others. That's no longer the case. In some of those locations which are 
for like say for instance chlamydia screening uh, patients are screened for single diseases and it's not necessarily insisted upon that they are screened and investigated for others uh, that I, that is a problem I think that uh, potentially uh, can lead to um, suboptimal uh, care of some individuals that I think is perhaps one of the, the negative things you know which has occurred uh, during my lifetime um, and I'm sure that my bosses would have been appalled that we did not insist that all patients returned for follow-up to ensure that treatment had been successful both clinically and microbiologically was part of the mantra that I was brought up with. And I think that we need to certainly think about that now, not least as the problem of antimicrobial resistance in conditions such as gonorrhea uh, is on the increase. How do you see um, the key challenges that we face as we go forward? The, uh, the key challenges for in clinical challenges will certainly be in terms of maintaining uh, good control of uh, HIV. Uh, there is a very big problem uh, with uh, 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 multiple antibiotic resistance in uh, gonococci, uh, which uh, have evolved uh, and may be exceeding our capacity soon to adequately deal with them. Um, I was reading the other day that we're uh, uh, talking about returning to topical treatment uh, for conditions such as pharyngeal gonorrhea, um, and it may be that, uh, that we will have to consider uh, reverting to uh, a, a topical treatment in addition to systemic treatment for uh, these conditions if our antibiotics fail. But we also have to be alive to new problems. Uh, uh, we've seen a new problem with viruses such as Zika. Um, and because the problems in one country are very, very easy to transmit uh, elsewhere uh, in terms of because of tra travel. We could have problems that uh, we could easily get um, problems arising in one part of the world being transferred to others. So I see that uh, there are likely to be new threats uh, arising, uh, perhaps not of the same magnitude as the problem of HIV, uh, but uh, we need to continue to be uh, vigilant for the future. And do you think there are lessons that we should, people like us that are still caring for people with sexually transmitted infections, can take from this hundred years of venereology? I think that uh, the um, the basic principles by which we have dealt with these conditions for a long period of time need to, uh, to, to be appreciated. We know that uh, it is inevitable that sexually transmitted infections con will continue to be a problem. Uh, that has been the way it has been over the centuries, and that's the way that it will continue uh, in, in, in the future. Um, we uh, need, I think, to um, understand that trying to deal with these by uh, poor standards of uh, care and treatment, by 
moralistic judgment by promoting shame and stigma does not work. And what we have to do is to provide excellence in terms of individual health care, uh, care which is easily accessible and which has a high degree of patient acceptability. Uh, we need to adopt good control of infection uh, as part of our care package, and we need to make quite sure that we have a well-informed public as well as a well-informed medical profession. Well-informed people are more likely to get to uh, have health-seeking behaviour to to seek uh, help before symptoms occur rather than when after complications have occurred and after transmission to others has occurred. So uh, the principles are the same as they have been for the past, uh, in my view, in the past, uh, the past century. We just need to make sure that we, have, we are particularly good at applying them in the future. Well, thank you very much for giving us your time. And uh, for the listeners, you can find out more about the centenary of the Venereal Diseases Act at our journal's website, which is sti.bmj.com.